Today's podcast is brought to you by the Bioceuticals Integrative Oncology Workshop with Dr. Lee Zalchula. This full-day program will run between the dates of the 20th and 28th of July across Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Adelaide and Perth. The intensive class will explore key concepts and therapeutic integrative strategies for breast, prostate, colon and lung cancers, as well as how to support toxicities associated with conventional treatment. By the end of the day, you'll be able to confidently implement this important aspect of patient care into your clinical practice. For more information and to register for this critical event, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me in the studio again today is Dr. Mark Donahoe, a man of great renown and brilliant. a friend of mine. Brilliant to be back. <laughs> My brain is still overflowing with that symposium output, and so it's kind of been a bleeding episode for me. Too much in and not enough time yet to process it. Yeah, we warned people. Mm. It, it, it was not a light thing to undertake, but we wanted people to get a real practical sense from experts and how do you do year how do you infuse decades of expertise into a weekend i think that i think that that process of just providing the information providing the expertise the case studies really really a brilliant idea you know you take the theory and then you apply it to cases and i i feel that what happened with the practitioners is we're all suffused in it all worried that we weren't going to get enough, you weren't going to remember enough. And with that density of information, you can't remember it all. And personally, I think it's Bioceutical's job for the next year to unravel and untangle that and to give people the kind of practical advice in the breakdown. And I, I suspect that's what we're going to start to do today. Well, I think that's the perfect thing to do. So why don't we, over the next year, odd, mm. Uh, we'll do a little synopsis each month and we'll talk about some clinical pearls that mm-hmm. we gleaned from, from the symposium. Yeah, try and try and take the very, very deep information that was presented, break it into chunks that I think we could all benefit from as practitioners. I, to me, the overarching message was integrative medicine is a different thing than medicine. Medicine is still back in the dark ages of diagnosis, end-stage disease and rescue treatments. And what we really heard over that four days was that you can have toxicology, immunology, gastroenterology, cardiology, you can have them all together in one common concept that good integrative practitioners can put effort into and fix the whole lot. We do not have to wait for disease. In fact, our job is to make doctors poor to push them out of business at the other end. And successful integrative medicine is going to see these disease processes halted in their tracks rather than rescue remedies at the end of it. I use rescue remedies in the general medical sense rather than the homeopathic. But you also said end stage. And and can I qualify you on that? What do you mean by end stage? Because some people would think, you know, catastrophic and and near death. By end stage, I mean we doctors generally run our diagnostics around the point where damage has already occurred, where we are in a repair mode and trying to get people back onto reasonable or even halfway reasonable health. 
we've missed the opportunity to really understand processes, people at risk, what lifestyle, diet, exercise, what all of those factors bring to a person's health and life and what we can do to walk into that space and do something useful for all disease potential outcomes. So we don't have to be so specific about are we preventing cardiac disease. Big, very good idea, but when you prevent cardiac disease, you prevent inflammation, immune activation, you prevent the oxidative damage and you get the whole gamut of benefits. And so that's where I see integrated medicine and this symposium as being able to provide real value to practitioners. Well, let's give an overview of the sort of overarching theme, if you like, or, or antecedents, which were discussed in the symposium, and that's inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune dysfunction, and how it's relevant not just to one disease, but a plethora of disease pr- processes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that one of the most valuable concepts that was brought first last year by Mark Houston when he was here and then repeated right through the symposium this year was that there are infinite insults and you can spend your entire life trying to stop the insults from happening, but you will be unsuccessful. Life is breathing. There is oxidation which occurs at every point we defend ourselves against microbes. There are processes which are adaptive responses which, if allowed to go on unchecked for long periods of time, become pathology. That was critical to me. The understanding that where integrative medicine works is the processes that will eventually lead to irreversible damage. Doctors are good at recognising irreversible damage. A heart attack is an event that you can really quantify. Death is another end stage, not very useful for treatment, but we are able to qualify and quantify particular endpoints. What we're not good at in doing in medicine is identifying risk factors that if we intervene early enough are going to make a difference. We have also taken this idea in medicine of surrogate markers. You know, if your LDL cholesterol is lowered, you must therefore be at less risk without ever paying attention to the fact that that's not integrated into the person's life and often will make the person sicker. A statin that makes you weak, tired, muscle sore and unable to exercise may have a net negative effect, in fact probably will, for those people who suffer those problems. So I do see... The symposium is that exciting division. The people who were at the symposium were exposed to information beyond what most medical practitioners are able to cope with, and in fact beyond what most specialists are able to cope with. It's not that it is too hard to learn. It's just a different way of thinking about disease, not as pathology defined by a pathologist, a biopsy, or some kind of end-stage diagnostic uh, technique, but a process that we can intervene with, that we can, with common sense and with useful natural therapies, do something about to divert that course back towards normality. So how useful do you think those three overarching 10As were? or are, in expanding that Mm -hmm. to treat all diseases? I suspect, I have a suspicion that there's more than just three. You know, there's two types of people in the world, those who categorize and those who don't categorize. And this is kind of (laughs) the Mark Houston cardiology specialists. We all love to have just three things, but it is three really big things. Mm. There are subtleties that are probably not covered in that. 
But if, as a practitioner, you can cover inflammation really, really hard, you know, if you gave a doctor one thing that they were able to do effectively without side effects, inflammation control would be that number one thing right now. If you can get inflammation under control, if you can get oxidative damage under control, that pro-oxidant um, damaging, sclerosing, inflaming type of process, and if you can stabilize the immune dysfunction that's associated with that, then probably 75 to 80% of disease processes will be sabotaged and you will have a person much healthier than they would have been and potentially able to avoid their medical destiny, if you like. So I think... Those critical three things, can you simplify it so that our brains can get around it? Yeah. Control inflammation, control oxidation, optimize immune function. And in doing those things, all four speakers brought exactly the same message that these are the areas that trigger the inflammation. These are the things that trigger oxidation. What are the techniques? Reduce exposure to the things that cause the problem provide protection for the tissues that are, res are responding to that problem, and then improve function. And functional medicine or integrative medicine is improvement of function, not just damaging another enzyme. Most drugs poison an enzyme to achieve an end. And in poisoning one enzyme, then another problem occurs. Mm -hmm. Statins are a classic example. What we're aiming to do is not to introduce new problems, but to use the body's mechanisms, understand them, and facilitate them using natural molecules. I, I call them molecules of life, whether they're supplements, herbs, or anything else, things that already existed in nature that we've got a good chance of being able to deal with. The molecules of uh, trademarks and um, you know the commercial molecules always have a risk, and the risk is they're not quite the same as the ones that the body deals with, and there's usually a cost somewhere else. You, you remind me of a, a quote that was said, and I have tried to find this movie, but it was a, a, a documentary decades ago now, one and a half decades ago, on SBS, and it was saying uh, it was a doctor, a general doctor, wasn't interested, not complimentary or anything like that, just a normal doctor was saying, 20 years ago, the engine of medicine was the patient, Mm. And now, speaking in the sort of mid-90s, the engine of medicine is the patent. Mm. Good um, line. And uh, it's it's something that I keep in the back of my head. Whenever I hear the word patent, mm. you know there's money involved. Yeah. And so you've just got to be that little bit cautious when you're dealing with patients who don't necessarily fit into a small category. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I do agree with that. I see this that. issue with probiotics. Mm. I see it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's in complementary medicines, integrated medicines, everywhere. When you have commercial interests, yeah. when you have promotion of something, it tends to stand out from the background. Who promotes diet, lifestyle, sleep, sitting down at meals? Yeah. Who, who gains from that? We yeah. don't hear enough about the basics of life. And to the credit of all the speakers, all of them were focused on what is it in lifestyle? Yeah. Unpatentable, un but manageable, treatable, yep. and in fact, an intervention that has as big or bigger effect than our most powerful patented drugs. So it's not like we're giving up strong medicine for weak. We're giving up end-stage medicine for process intervention and sabotaging disease. And I, if there's a job of integrative medicine, it's to see disease not occur. That's why the argument is, for, is specious. Doctors say, how do you know that person has a disease? We hope they don't at that point. Our intervention, if successful, should prevent disease. But that puts us in a difficult position because the person does not at that stage have a disease that everyone will agree to. 
What does that mean? Randomized trials are really hard. Mm, mm. You cannot prevent... What are you looking for? Yeah, you cannot prove prevention with ease apart from lifelong outcomes, which are incredibly expensive studies. So intervention has to be has to have a philosophical strength to it. It has to have a conceptual framework. And integrative and functional medicine, I think, are that framework of the future. I said this at the conference, that this truly is the medicine of the future because the other one is unaffordable. If we keep trying to pick up the pieces at the end, there comes a point where you cannot afford to do that anymore. And we sacrifice the health of the pregnant woman, the young baby. We ignore the early possibilities for diet intervention, uh, avoiding caesareans, breastfeeding. We ignore those to our peril. I, th- I think that the, the symposium was just spectacular in refocusing us on what we can do before we enter any supplementation, pills, potions, or anything else, what we can do to change the course of a person's life from the earliest years. One of the, the standout speakers, um, <laughs> which is hard to say because they're four, all standout. Yeah, all four all of them four, stand out. Yeah. But one of the most interesting speakers to me was Dr. David Hassey and his work with neurodegenerative diseases mm. and his case histories where he, you saw the changes because he filmed the patient. Yes. Very interesting, very powerful to watch. Mm. Um, and he backed it up with his objective, um, you know, PET scans and things like that. But... Tell me about where we're headed with neurodegenerative disease as being the next scourge of our society because we're all ageing. David's David's presentations were, I think, thoughtful, powerful, and there was an emotional content to those that you rarely, rarely see with people with that specialised knowledge. The use of the uh, qualitative EEGs and the functional evoked responses, the ability to see that stress turns into neurological abnormalities, which accelerates a neuroinflammatory response, to see that there is no division between lifestyle, diet, stress, and brain function is very, very powerful. I'll tell you something funny that happened after the symposium. I looked up the Medicare benefits. Medicare benefits pay for EEGs, but not any that interpret on the whole of brain basis. So we specifically exclude anything other than epilepsy capture in the Medicare benefits. So there is a fear in medicine that we may act too generally if we start to respond that way. However, the concepts of focusing on oxidation, focusing on inflammation and on immune dysfunction is playable in every organ system and the brain especially will respond well to that. There is true neuroinflammation. It does not play out the same way as it does with lymphocytes and neutrophils in the periphery. These are the microglia, the, you know, our brain cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by other cells which feed, nurture, look after them and respond in an inflammatory way. It's just not the same appearance as it is in the rest of the body. And his his assessment of people in neurology can pick up those changes. The subtle forms of assessment of qualitative EEGs are a far, far better future medicine. I wish they were on the Medicare benefits scheme right at the moment, but I, I think that that's for our future, that we will be looking for where is the brain dysfunctional and we'll be relating it to cardiovascular disease and toxicology and the inflammatory processes that come from the gut, which are the whole four speakers we're all contributing to what goes wrong with the brain. Control at the gut level will have a very powerful effect on the neurological response and inflammation there. I think when you're saying, you know, you suspect there's more outside of those three sort of 10 A's, 
Um, I love your French, tenets. 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 I think one of the key points is, as you said, that under each of those three points, there's so many sub-points with which you can address that. Mm. Um, And that is what the delegates took home from their true expertise. They they took home their expertise saying, okay, this is how you address inflammation, by this, 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 and this. And so to me it sort of opened up how people look at disease processes. Yes. If you you ask Michael Ash, everything starts in the gut. Uh, If you ask um, Mark Houston... It's all a cardiovascular. If you manage cardiovascular risk, you have managed the whole of the body because everything circulates around the heart. But in fact, I I like Joe Pizzorno's um, approach, which is we can't even quantify our toxins. Mm. We have bodies that are under perpetual load, whereas our body is good at withstanding acute loads. We are well designed for that. We have adrenal and other responses that look after trauma, torture, starvation, all of these that work very well in the short term. What is functional medicine? It's short-term stresses that have become long-term, the adaptive stress that is so helpful and so useful to you in clearing out the toxin in responding to the tiger does not work when that stress becomes every single day of your life. The microbiome that malfunctions temporarily when sugars are high and inflammation is high has every winter to go through starvation, but not any longer. We have a 21st century, which is now, if you like, evolutionarily selective. There are people with genes that have never been a problem in the past and people with microbiomes that have never been a problem in the past who are now at risk because we have a diet full of sugars, we have high stress loads, we don't have true night times, we have light all the way through, and sleep disorders. And so in a, in a way what they're saying is we can cope with acute stresses and if we revert back to normal there is no disease consequence. There's a payback period and you recover. What we've managed to do is turn a world which was threatening with acute infections and acute stresses into a world where there's a low-grade chronic stress and the people with the methylation disorders, the people with the DQ genetics that respond to glutens, the people with uh, lactose intolerance, they're now suffering because the diet is the same day after day. The only thing you can buy, you have to work hard in a supermarket to get rid of what, what I might call it the evil spawn of gluten. It's really, really hard work mm, mm. to create diversity and, um, and change over time, seasonality to our diet. You've got to really think it through and say, oh, we'll work hard at this. And I think that my take-home message was if we were able to create diversity, you know, the hours of sleep change over, over seasons, the temperature changes over seasons, our houses, our diet, our watching TV, our not eating properly, not getting enough hours of sleep – are primary interventions that every practitioner can do, and they're useful for everybody. They're really useful for the people who are highly at risk, and finding those people is not all that hard because they're the ones that keep turning up to our practices. You made a comment a little bit earlier about how we heal given the right mm. circumstances, and that's a, an axiom of naturopathic medicine. But at what stage do you pass this tipping point where, where all you can do is halt disease progress rather than reverse disease processes back to healthy tissue. And I'll take, for instance, atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah. How much can it be reversed? I've asked around about this. I I mean, I asked Jason Kaplan, who you interviewed uh, on a previous podcast here, 
there's a feeling that once calcium is deposited, even high doses of vitamin K, even a perfect diet, don't reverse it all that much, but it may allow for incorporation and for the plaque to become less kind of foamy and fragile and stabilize it. So there is, there's a repair mechanism where there's scar, and that's not necessarily a bad outcome. Right. So a scar is a permanent thing, and in the blood vessels that might be a bit of plaque, which is quite stable and is not going to go anywhere and is not going to disturb blood flow all that much. There are unstable progressions, and so that kind of fluffy plaque, the one that is likely to become uh, to move and to cut off the blood supply, is the thing that we don't want. So when we're looking at reduction of risk, we're trying to intervene as early as possible. When there is a certain stage of disease, it's necessary to form teamwork with a specialist. It is necessary to say, give us an answer about how we stabilize the real risk. And that often requires potent drug therapy or stents or intervention. And then get back to the job of once you're stabilized from the medical perspective, let's move on and change that risk profile. And the thing that doctors have failed to realize is they see cardiovascular risk, you know, the stent. The stent is the end stage of what is done. And they say, oh, okay, your heart is fixed. And it's a surprise when there's renal problems or where there is toxicological problems or where there's degenerative problems in the brain. Mm. Shouldn't be. The concept of infinite insults and a limited range of responses says the problem will turn up in an organ system that that person is weakest in. I use this term all the time. Stress causes no disease, but it exacerbates every disease. Your weak point will be uncovered by stress. Mm. That stress may be toxicological. Joe Pizzorno's idea of we get our arsenic, we get our mercury, we get our exposure through the air, food and water, and we deal with that the entire time by adaptation, by detoxification, and when that fails, we get accumulation of pathology. Right. It can be exacerbated by altered gut function, post-antibiotics. Lots of the people that I see have antibiotic courses over and over for an infection when no one knows why that infection is persisting. No one pays attention to it. Antibiotics are the only course of action. Then the inflammation from the microbiological changes in the gut surprise everybody. So the person moves from acute infection, which is eventually resolved, and ends up with chronic inflammation of joint pains, of skin conditions, of the gut playing up. Mm. And so I, I think that there is a point where there's irresolvable damage that does not mean that you progress on to any terrible outcome. That just means you kind of stitch it up, you scar it, you put it away, and that is a bit of loss of function. And in aging, we start with a lot of excess function in childhood, and we lose most of it by the time we're ready to die. So I, I don't find that a problem. I, I think that our that concept of squaring the curve, what we're aiming for is not to degenerate slowly so that at 40 people are saying, oh, my doctor says I should expect arthritis, but to be really healthy at 70, 75, 80, 85, and then fall off your perch according to the kind of genetic time bomb that you've got in there. The people with lousy methylation keep dying in their 40s and 50s from cardiovascular disease. If we knew of them, if we just paid attention to those MTHFRs and we got them on their folates and B12 and their B6 and the zinc and we got their transulfation happening, they live perfectly healthy long lives. They don't go down that pathway that their genetic destiny would suggest. So I think that we have an obligation in integrated medicine to work with orthodox medicine and for there to be a handover transition period where we don't own patients and say, no, we will avoid statins at any cost whatsoever, even if it's death. That's not a fight to the death. Mm.
The death is always happening in the patient, not us. And so to minimise their risks, we have to work cooperatively with those who can do the job of stabilising damage, minimising future risk, and then get back to the job of undoing the causes. Two comments that you made, can I ask you to just elucidate on? The first one was what you said about squaring the curve. The second one is to do with predictive medicine, if you like. If you're a healthy human adult at 25, then you have X amount of risk of osteoporosis, X amount of risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease when you're 65, 75. So it's kind of like, are we really seeing or are we really advocating health at 25 or are we just advocating a normal expectancy? The second question first, because I think they're related in reverse order. We're getting to the point with genetics with our ability to assess the individual risk of individual medicine. And medicine, my own profession, is sadly, in my mind, walking down the path of statistical medicine, where you do trials on patient groups that may not reflect anything about individuality. You try and remove the individual components from the patient and treat the disease process by evidence-based methods. We are individuals, and every one of us is biochemically, immunologically, genetically, and every other way individual. We each have individual microbiomes. And an ability to uncover the risk areas at age 25 or at 10 or at birth is a really powerful way of predicting that person's future trajectory. If you ask every doctor, what we will say is, if you want to predict something, ask about the family history. If you want to know about when menopause is likely in a woman, ask about her mum. If you want to predict methylation, see when the men died in the family of cardiovascular disease. So a lot of what we do in clinical medicine is ask the patient history and ask the family history. What we're now able to do is peek in and say, okay, your family history is X. Do you carry that risk? And that ability to stare at the genetics to stare at the processes, the, the cholesterol subtypes, the particle sizes and the particle types, to be able to look at something and say to a person, you are actually not on that trajectory, but you may need to watch out for something else. At 25, where there is plenty of extra facilities where the body can adapt almost infinitely, you can still say, be careful of this particular thing. Be careful of gluten because you carry the genes that will be reactive there. Be careful of cardiovascular risk factors because you have a methylation abnormality. So I I think that if we get to individualized medicine, then we are automatically doing that other thing of squaring the curve. We're saying, we know your weak points. We will cover some of those weak points, whether that's with nutrition, lifestyle modification, exercise. We'll be able to say you can minimize the weak points there. Squaring the curve just means less of the weak points break along the way. So you maintain optimum function for longer in your life. And when death comes, which it most certainly will, like um, the one horse shay, it all just tumbles and falls apart at the one time. And a good quick death after a very long, healthy life is, Mm. in fact, the ideal way to go. Falling apart bit by bit, being unwell in your 30s and 40s and 50s and putting up with it. And what's worse, having 70-year-old fit, healthy doctors saying, well, what can you expect? You're 50. You know, of course you're going to get heart attacks. You know, we act as though it's inevitable and we can actually not look into a person and find a better answer for them in the earlier stages of life. Medicine's got to pick up its game. But we in integrative medicine have to pick up our game, which is we've got to be prepared to look for where the problems will be and what we can do something about and advice we can give that can become lifelong 
for that person to live healthily. I want to delve into what uh, Dr. Joe Bizzorno, uh spoke about, and that's toxicology. And this has been something that you've got a lot of expertise in treating some families in Sydney. Mm-hmm. My question is relating to toxicity and economics and culture. So to explain that, we're in a sort of tighten-your-belt period in Australian economic history. And so more people are renovating old houses. So what that means is that all of the chemicals that were painted on and used in treating timbers and under the slab and things like that are now being exposed and released into the at least local environment and in some instances a a, a more diverse environment like a suburb. Mm. Um, So how big an issue do you feel that is in the patients that you see, like lead paint and Mm. that sort of thing? The next one is the – we see these – uh, do-it-yourself programs on TV, yeah. you know, how, how to build a pergola. And so we build a pergola with things that you can't eat, uh, the termites can't eat, mm. and that's the CCA, the chromium copper arsenic-treated pine. Mm. So therefore you've got that handling, you're sanding, you're sawing, and you've got young kids around. So my question is, how big an issue are these in the patients that you see? And what about the projection from the current adults doing the work and to their children around that workplace. Yeah, Joe actually reminded me a bit about where my practice started. You know, my practice was involved in organochlorine, organophosphate toxicology and heavy metal toxicology. And his the presentations were powerful in that they said, here's the stressors which you don't even see which you may not pay attention to if you don't take a really deep family history and a really deep environmental history. You don't know what the susceptibilities are and you don't know where the toxins come from. And I thought his was a particularly powerful talk to say, you don't even need to pay attention to the actual brand name of every last toxin. You need to assess the toxic load that that person has been exposed to and their stage of life and development. Little kids developing brains exposed to mercury, arsenic, cadmium, chromium, lead, there are profound outcome changes. He even nominated you know, the 7 to 10 or 11 point IQ changes from what we regard as quite acceptable toxicological insults to our children. Mm. I realized when he was talking that I've become almost inured to it because I am so aware that the toxic load is there that I just assume that's the starting point that we have to put up with. And he reminded me that a focus on minimizing the risks of being adequate in your history and your environmental history um, in a medical consultation is essential to knowing what the toxic load can be and whether you should do something to actively detoxify. So that was a really valuable part of the talk. The other thing that was valuable is the diversity of places that the toxins come from, that the arsenic. Now, I don't know. They gave the example of the arsenic in chicken, which I felt fed arsenic to make them grow quickly in America. I am yet to find out if that's something that goes on in Australia, but I am aware of the antibiotics that are used. I am aware of the toxins that can come through from the metal fillings. We still have the mercury amalgam problem where dentistry remains in denial of the major exposure of mercury. We have environmental contaminants. As you say, when people start to renovate, they're tearing off paint, sanding it back, 
and the lead of the in the paint, especially the whiter paints, which I had really not thought through. You know, mm. the the white paint is one of the most toxic forms of lead around. Sanding it back, renovating, and having the kids playing in the area is just not right. And peeling off paint from skirting boards, which were painted yeah. white. Yeah, and those those are almost the forgotten toxins. We've won some of our wars against organochlorines, but the chemical industry just shifts into a different type of toxin. When I grew up and when we were measuring the toxins in people, most of those toxins remained around in the body long enough for us to be able to find them, identify them and expose them. And we published papers on this and the thinking at the time was, oh no, they can't hurt you. Now the thinking is, oh, they did hurt us and thank God we've got rid of them. But we've just replaced them with different ones that act short term more powerfully than the old ones. And so we use pesticides now, organophosphates, carbamates, and the new pesticides that still affect people's brain function, still affect kids' growth trajectory and their ability to function in school. I'm, I'm going back to toxicology. Like I, I, as I've said to you, I'm opening a new practice. I think that I, what I want to do is implement some of the diagnostic and conceptual frameworks of the symposium and start to bring about a whole-of-person assessment where the toxicology just again becomes a standard part of that. Are there things that are impacting a person's health? A bit of its genetic susceptibility, the other, the rest of it is exposure. And so coming back to that framework, toxicological management, detoxifying what is there and not putting any more in, is to me the foundation of functional medicine, the foundation of integrated medicine. If you keep poisoning yourself... You cannot get better. That's just the simple rule. All of the things we have of chelation, of detoxification, all of that, if the input doesn't change, the output won't change, and that is disease will eventually occur. So how practically does one, in this environment where toxins are ubiquitous, Hmm. how does one choose a diet that lessens pragmatically the load of toxins entering our body? You pay three times as much as anybody else and you go to particular places that sell only organic foods. And I'll tell you a brief story. My sickest and most toxic patients are almost universally unemployed, unemployable and have run out of money. What do they spend their money on? Organic food. They know that if they come off their organic diet, and there is no, you know, there is no placebo thing here. They don't want to pay three times as much for their food. But if they come off their organic diet, they slide down that path of unrecoverable function. If they keep the diet right and they keep the fiber content up and they're keeping organic vegetables and fruits and things as, as a major part of their diet, they know that the clear out that goes on with the gut function and the clear out that goes with not intoxicating themselves any further sees them partially recover. The rest of the jobs are to choose the type of foods. We have our dirty dozen, which now are the dirty 14, now that kale has been introduced. <laughs> that, was, that was one of those you know, superfood dunce in, uh, in one sitting. But that the, um, the accumulation of organophosphates by kale, that was something of a surprise mm-hmm. to me. And so we now have our dirty 14 and our clean 15 and choosing the right foods, choosing your avocados in place of apples or choosing organic in that uh, dirty 14. If you choose organic foods in there, you can construct a diet and building the diversity of the diet is the second thing. What do you do? Foods in season, 
we don't have 5,000 different vegetables and foods to choose from. We have probably a couple of dozen. But keeping that turnover that represents the seasonality of the food and fresh food and locally produced food and organic food is a is the absolute foundation of many of my patients' life and uh, and their diet. The second thing is, though, sitting down and eating food. There is a surprising problem that arises because we have fear of food. You know, we make people terrified of gluten, terrified of just about everything in food, and then we say, relax and eat your food. How do you relax when you've spent your entire life going over labels and you're terrified of every molecule of gluten? What seems to be the case is, the parasympathetic relaxation response that allows the gut to function, that allows gastric acid, pepsin, and the digestive enzymes to work that may do something to manage leaky guts as well, that you need to be able to relax into your food and sit down and enjoy food, which generally means enjoy it with a family. And in the history that I take, most families don't do that anymore. The kids have their food in while they're on the computer and they grab something to eat. There is no relaxation period, and so it should hardly surprise us that digestion is impaired, microbiome is impaired, inflammation and neurological losses are just a simple consequence of that. So getting, getting that back, what do people do who are at the sickest? They organize their meals, their diet, they try and relax into their food, they get their night's sleep. They're just the canaries, if you like. They've figured it out because there is a direct response between failing to do it and sickness. And I think we can take that as a kind of guide for other people who are not yet in that category and say, you can break the trajectory of illness by getting into those areas first and getting them right. A little um, pragmatic point about uh, social eating. It's really fun when you've got teenage boys and uh, particularly one on a computer, and you have to argue with them to get them to sit at the table and try and eat socially. It really sets up for a relaxed atmosphere. I, I know. <laughs> I, I was one who turned Wi-Fi off at one point and was nearly <laughs> eaten myself. And so the the idea of separating a person from their social group, from yeah. their structure outside, my daughter makes the argument that her social group isn't her family, it's her friends online, so she's actually doing the right thing to relax by being on Facebook at the time she's eating. And I, I'm yet to find the right answer to that. A little bit of reassurance. They tend to come back. Do they? <laughs> there is hope. I want to make a point about something I read in a newspaper clipping. This is the Northwest Star, so it's around Mount Isa, distributed out, out west. Peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> Peer-reviewed journal, Tuesday, May 15th, 2007. This is an ad for the local area health service, and it's a program called Get Bled for Lead. Hmm run by the Mount Isa Community Lead Screening Program. Free blood tests for children aged one to four years are available every Wednesday evening in May, where at the Mount Isa Base Hospital from 4 to 7 p.m. Every child tested goes into a draw for prizes, including free airfares, probably to get out of Mount Isa. <laughs> but, but you know what? This program failed because people were so complacent yeah. Around uh, the the residents of Mount Isa were so complacent that they didn't bother getting their children tested for lead levels in a known area. What hope have we got when in, uh, outside of that area, like suburban Sydney, for instance, where people are doing up renovations and they're sanding off the lead paint off the skirting boards or their children are picking off the white paint and eating it because it tastes sweet. Mm. It does taste sweet, doesn't it? Uh, 
There are a couple of answers. One of them is there are communities where the problem is so big that it's like climate denial, that you know the problem is there and you really don't want to know how big that problem is. You are left with having to live in an area and raise your children. And there was that great line, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish. The same thing happens in environments. When the whole community is there, there's a kind of evenness in a background and you can't see the problem that emerges. This happened also with asthma across Australia. But toxicology... Oddly, it's the families that have done the most to minimise toxins that are keenest to test. There's a certain level of guilt that a parent feels when they find that their children are intoxicated, whether it's mercury, lead, cadmium, chromium, arsenic, even simple fish that we eat can sometimes be one of those contaminants. And yet we say to people, eat your fish, you know, it's really, really good for you. So I can understand it. I don't know, I don't know that we can do much about those communities apart from, say, we have it on offer. But in the broader community, when people, when parents are not feeling like they're going to be blamed if there's a problem, and this happens with genetic testing too, they'll test the kids, but they won't test themselves to find out where the genes came from because parents feel very guilty if they've made the environment or the genes that make their children sick. So if, if we do get that testing done, it's going to be more, what are your exposures? Where are the likely places people come uh, from or the toxins come from. And that's, I think, where Joe was really powerful. Do you grow your own little organic veggie garden? Not if it's right beside a house, which is painted on the outside where the lead and the other contaminants are there, and not in a garden, which is on the edge of where the termiticides are used to stop the termites getting into the house. You may think it's organic, but that is far from organic. That's very, very high dose uh, toxin exposure. What do you do with uh, mercury. He was great on that. Joe's powerful contribution in my mind was toxins are everywhere. You can assume that there are toxins. It is sometimes worth going and searching them out, but more broadly, it's worth protecting. Why do we do oxidation, inflammation, immune dysfunction? It's the same kind of thing, but we try and reduce exposure. And doing something to reduce exposure is a lifetime of discovery of what things are the toxins. We don't even think of some toxins as toxins. The blue lights of the computer screens act as toxins, especially when that blue light keeps triggering the melatonin breakdown in the early hours of the morning. Kids are doing this all the way through the night. They lose their circadian rhythm. Turning off the screens is really critical to child health. Leaving screens on is anathema to child health. Their sleep cycles just do not organize themselves well. And there's no point giving melatonin to a child whose screen is on at 3 a.m. while they're still on Facebook. It just doesn't work out that way. So opening our minds to where are the toxins, where are the lifestyle factors, the children who don't exercise. Again, a really powerful contribution to health problems later on in life. Kids play, they jump and they run, except when they've got computer screens in front of them whereupon they sit still for 17 hours at a stretch and then get back problems, neck problems, and concentration problems. What amazes me is parents will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a few extra points advantage in their schooling. They won't spend a penny getting their children's neurological development right in the first three to five years of life. They paint their baby rooms. Toxins are everywhere, suckable plastics. And the foods that we give kids really define their future health. And so if you want a really healthy, smart baby, 
Don't go choosing your school for, you know, 14, 15 and 16 years of age. Choose your diet, the sleep and the circumstances in which you live in the first five years of life and you've done an amazing amount to consolidate their neurological function for the future wherever they go to school. Professor Creswell Eastman of Westmead Hospital has has been banging on about this for years, about iodine deficiency. Indeed, very few GPs know, it's been shown in research, um, know that since January 2010, it it has been a a National Medical Health and Research Council, NHMRC, guideline that every pregnant woman should receive 150 micrograms of iodine as a supplement on top of diet. And yet it's just not done. And this has been shown to influence their IQ. Yes, well, this is the other side of Joe's talk. If you don't have the nutrients that are capable of helping you manage the toxins... So one is, what are you exposed to? The other one is, what is your natural detoxification, your metabolic rate, the ability of the thyroid to maintain a metabolic process such as phase one and phase two detoxification to regenerate the glutathione. Those are very, very much based on your metabolic rates around the body. If you drop your metabolic rate with a low thyroid, you lose brain function, but you also lose the ability. The toxin intake remains high, the output remains low. And so ensuring iodine, paradoxically, has an antitoxic effect, which is your metabolic rate goes up and you clear things out more efficiently. So nutrients in are one powerful way of managing metabolic rate, oxidation, uh, oxidative damage, inflammation and the like. I think we should go through some of those, you know, the omega-3s and some of the probiotic uh, supplements that you can do for that. We can do a lot to detoxify without having to go into very arcane EDTA or DMSA type interventions. We can do a lot just by choice of clean diet and then improving metabolic function and gut function. Mark, uh, can I ask you, seeing as we had four speakers for the Mm -hmm. 2015 symposium, and that was Dr. Mark Houston, Dr. David Hassey, Mike Ash and Dr. Joe Pizzorno, can you give me a hit point? that you took home from each speaker for the listeners? Wow. That's like 36 hours and just a hit point to I take know. home. I know. All right. I'll give it a shot. The, maybe it's not one hit point. If I start with Joe... 20 hit points. Okay. <laughs> if I start with Joe, to me the big points were don't forget the toxic intake. It, the world looks cleaner than it actually is. We are good at making invisible poisons. And we're very poor at discovering those invisible poisons because we're immersed in it the whole time. So the number one thing from my perspective was don't forget the toxins. Measure for them if you can. So the metals in urine and the DMSA challenge, they're methods of measuring for those toxic loads. Manage them with detoxification, but only after the lifestyle and the reduction of intake is managed. So there's no point treating toxicity when you have not managed the intake because all you're doing is just increasing that transfer chain. So to me, the powerful message was toxins are still the agents which trigger that inflammation, oxidation, and immune dysregulation. They are still powerful, and whether that's cardiovascular, gut, renal, wherever, the brain, these are all the places that we should be paying attention to toxin and removal. And reduction is important. What he also pointed out was that diet, 
uh, non-digestible fiber, the ability to detoxify ourselves over time should be enhanced with variety of diet. Not everything has to be highly technical, but we can still use potent antioxidants, potent inflammation control. So omega-3s, the ability to get sulfur, SAMI was a very important thing that came up over and over, N-acetylcysteine and SAMI, to keep on providing for that glutathionation in the brain with SAMI and generally with NAC. So I, I still come back to that as one of my foundations, is toxicology is a critical issue that we just pay no attention to. It's invisible. Joe made it visible again. David's, David Hussey's lectures were more on what is the impact on the soup of the brain and the electrical function of the brain. And we do need to consider the two things. One is the biochemistry. How do our molecules like tyrosine and phenylalanine and dopamine, what's the processes that they go through? And can we do something to bring those into normal function to stabilize brain chemistry? And in doing so, can we also do something on the electrochemical side so that the messaging, the kind of wiring of that network is brought back into shape? And he showed powerfully that simple enough interventions were able to restore whole of brain function using the QEEG as one of those measurements and markets. So to me, his impact was the brain is affected. There are messages that come from the gut via the vagus nerve. There are direct inflammatory agents. There are neurotoxins. There are foods, and they have those effects on the brain. And we can do a lot by detoxifying and managing the brain. We can get brain chemistry back, and we can get function back in the brain. Um, Mike Ash and Mark Houston had a real ding-dong battle. It was, a, it was great to hear those guys going hammer and tongs. <laughs> Some of the best ties that I have ever seen worn were worn during this conference in the battle across the Atlantic Ocean. Michael's contribution, I think, was that the gut microbiome is not just a bunch of bugs, that there is a whole mucosal immunology, and when we're looking at inflammation and disordered immune function, going to the gut first and doing the simple things, getting your apple sauce or you know your uh, stewed apples together, very simple things with the diet, getting Saccharomyces boulardii back in there so that you can stabilize some of the gut inflammatory processes. Doing simple enough things with the diet can make a profound change of gut mucosal immunology. I'd, I would recommend everyone go back and when the biocuticals videos are around, go back to those talks because there are very simple things that can be done. Even the aloe vera juice. I had forgotten about aloe vera juice and the soluble fiber. It's easy to forget that there are components of diet and inflammation control that you can do very, very simply. Um, and then, of course, the, the great man himself, Mark Houston, he basically put the conference together. What's his take-home message? That you can reduce what you need to do as a medical practitioner or a healthcare practitioner or a naturopath or a mother to just controlling inflammation, controlling oxidation, and controlling the immune dysregulation. The powerful message was cardiovascular system is a thing that breaks routinely. It's still our number one killer. And it's not the target of anything. It's just the transport mechanism but the hypertension, the lipid profile disorders, the inflammation and damage there, when managed well according to principles of nutrition, according to exercise, diet, lifestyle, and specific nutrients, that you can undo the damage not just in the cardiovascular system, you can undo that damage with cancer risk, with toxicology, with gut function, and you get neurological benefits as well. And the, pow the powerful message of the whole conference was 
they're not different areas. These were four potent speakers, all with deep knowledge in their own areas, that were talking about the same molecules, the same way of trying to recover, the same techniques of minimizing toxicology, minimizing neurological damage, heart damage, and getting the gut function back into normal function. So to me, the powerful message was, we don't need to wait for disease. We've got a, a kind of inside run on the processes that happen. We've got the ways of dealing with those ones. And I would get everybody to go back to some of those. And I think what we should do is deal with the specifics in future podcasts, just break them down and say, what specifically will the practitioner be able to do? Lifestyle, diet, sleep, they're all great. But when people come to you as a practitioner, what are the practical things you're going to be doing for this person for this problem? And I think that's what we should do for the rest of this year. So, Mark, I think that's absolutely a perfect thing to do. So I propose that from now for at least the next 12 months, Mm -hmm. what we'll do is we'll introduce maybe some controversial papers that might have to do with the subject matter. Yes. And then you and I delve into the practicalities of what these speakers spoke about. Um, to give the listeners take-home message to integrate into their yeah. practice. And what, what specifically, I mean, even down to dosage and duration, um, yeah. the dietary specifics, I think that there's an enormous amount to unpack, to put on the table and to try and link it back to how the common presentations in our healthcare practices go. Dr Mark Donahoe, thank you so much for joining me again today and I'll welcome you back next month. Yeah, this will be a fun year. Unpacking that conference is going to be everyone's nightmare, I think. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.